Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin, uh, Sheboygan County. <laughs> it's good to have you here with us this morning for the Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word, Saturday, October 8th, 2022. Today, for our catechesis, we're actually going to look at tomorrow's Old Testament and epistle reading, consider those, uh, but as we're finishing out um, our daily recitation of um, a psalm and our singing of a hymn. Uh, we'll consider that psalm and that hymn a little in a little bit more detail as well, now that we've uh, had opportunity to become familiar with it. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Okay, memory verse. Whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2, verse 10. Again, whoever shall keep the whole law yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. James 2, verse 10. All right. Our psalm is Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous." You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. All right. Ah, yes. I was looking for an image. And I found it uh, on this text. As a matter of fact, let me just get it all queued up here and then I'll show you my screen. I think you'll find it amusing, maybe. All right, let's go back over here. And nope, there we go. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Of course, you see Mr. T, I pity the fool. Pretty good, huh? <laughs> I suppose. Uh, I need to save this for a rainy day. I could use this sometime when we pray the psalm. There we go. Uh, so, meditation on the psalm. Uh, we don't need Mr. T for that. Uh, listen to Father Reardon here. Psalm 13, Hebrew 14, is almost identical to Psalm 52. The book of Psalms shows several signs of including earlier collections of psalms, and this duplication of a single psalm is doubtless the result of some ancient confluence from two different collections. 
right? So there were different books of Psalms, and then um, they were combined together as canon at some point. And uh, some of the duplication was was not omitted. There you go. Psalm 13 or 14 in our English begins with what the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Taking this verse as thematic, we may say that the present psalm explores the relationship of atheism to folly. Fool in Holy Scripture is a word rather of moral than a purely intellectual reference. Fool in Holy Scripture is a word rather of moral than of purely intellectual reference. Biblical folly is not a matter of being endowed with a hockey score IQ. It would be inaccurate to describe the biblical fool as merely a slow learner or someone intellectually challenged. The latter folk, after all, may well be pitied, but the Bible has no compassion for the fool. When it comes to suggest possible remedies for this problem, Scripture mentions a good, robust caning for the fool. Folly in the Bible is a thing deliberately chosen. What is wrong with the biblical fool is always a matter of his heart. He is the man obdurate in evil, or obstinate, we might say. If the fool does not understand, it is because he is intentionally blind. He is hard of heart. That's key. So what does this fool say in his hardened heart of his? Ein Elohim uk estin theus. There is no God. In the Bible, that is to say, atheism is a sort of ultimate folly, a denial of what is virtually self-evident. Again, according to the scriptures, deism, if you like, that there is a God is virtually self-evident in both creation and nature in one's own self-examination. There are two places where biblical literature explicitly discusses the natural evidence for God's existence. Wisdom 13 and Romans 1. All right, Wisdom 13 is in the Apocrypha, Romans 1, of course, is New Testament. Though both texts are directly concerned not with atheism, strictly speaking, but with idolatry, both passages are worth a quick glance, for they do bear directly on the subject of the psalm. Oh, I think by wisdom he means, uh, according to the Septuagint, which would be, um, which would be Proverbs. Uh, wisdom 13 stresses the structured order of the world, wondering why some people are unable to perceive this order or to draw therefrom the correct inferences about the work of its maker. They make the wrong identification of certain phenomena in nature with respect to the origin or governance of the universe. That is to say, they are idolaters rather than atheists, deeming, quote, either fire or wind, or the swift air, or the circle of the stars, or the violent water, or the lights of heavens, to be the gods which govern the world. The author of Wisdom has is of two minds regarding such folk. He speculates that perhaps they are, quote, less to be blamed, for they are, they peradventure air, that's a strange translation, seeking God and desiring desirous to find him. Still, he goes on, he is unable completely to absolve their blindness. Howbeit, neither are they to be pardoned, for if they were able to know so much that they could study the world, how did they not sooner find out the Lord thereof? In Romans 1, St. Paul is certainly not of two minds on this point, and his criticism is less qualified or muted than those of Wisdom 13. For the Apostle, those who do not recognize the true God from the study of his works in nature are possessed of no reasonable appeal for pardon. Quote, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.20 
He then goes on, like the author of Wisdom, to enumerate the sorts of idolatry resulting from this failure to recognize the Creator in His works. Now, if Holy Scripture speaks in such minatory tones about those who, failing to recognize the Creator of the world, become sidetracked or short-circuited into idolatry, how much worse will be the condemnation of the atheist? Recognizing no obligation to worship at all, the atheist is more corrupt than the poor idolater, who may be overly excited by the brilliance of the sun and so calls upon Apollo, or excessively impressed by the grandeur of the sea and thus prostrates himself before Neptune. In our present psalm, indeed, the reasoning of the atheist is actually a more a mere contrivance for corruption. The atheist does not want to know God. By, ex- by way of explaining the motive for saying that there is no God, our psalmist continues, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. That's Romans 3 as well. The folly of the fool, then, is not born of atheism. On the contrary, the atheism is born of the folly. Foolishness. The atheist does not know God because he has chosen not to seek God. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have begun, together become corrupt. The constant, unreversed cultivation of sin leads in due course to total blindness, even blindness to what is self-evident. Which is a really good point. Uh, seems, I think, particular, particularly relevant to us today. We look around and say, how can, uh, how can people willfully believe uh, what really is absurdity when it comes to, um, you know, sexual identity, for example. How how is it even 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 possible that that you could come to such a conclusion? Well, uh, it comes first through worship of other gods, or actually even worse than that, worship of no god, or the only god. Really, the atheist ultimately is worshiping themselves. Right? They become god unto themselves, right? and thereby all sorts of other confusion results. All right, so wisdom, it is the apocryphal wisdom is what we're looking at here. Um, try to find a good translation. Oh, I have my um, I have my apoc- ESV apocrypha right behind me. Let me grab it. All right, with Lutheran edition with notes from Concordia Publishing House. So um, we have a published version of the Wisdom of Solomon and uh, with, with notes, just like our study Bible. All right, so here we go. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and no torment will ever touch them. In the eyes of the foolish, they seem to have died, and their departure was thought to be an evil thing, and their going from us to be their destruction, but they are at peace. For though in the sight of men they were punished, their hope is full of immorality. Or, excuse me, immortality. Excuse me. (laughs) Get those two confused, right? Having been disciplined a little, they will receive great good. All right, and I think he was quoting this part. But the ungodly will be punished as their reasoning deserves, who disregarded the righteous man and rebelled against the Lord. For whoever despises wisdom and instruction is miserable. This will come up in our Old Testament reading for tomorrow. Their hope is vain, their labors are unprofitable, and their works are useless. Their wives are foolish and their children evil, their offspring accursed. All right, so wisdom of Solomon, talking about the ungodly there. Good. Okay, our catechism this week is the review and close of commandments. Next week, we'll start on the first article of the Apostles' Creed. All right, but this week, review and close. What, uh, what does God say about all these commandments? He says, I, the Lord your God, 
am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What does this mean? God threatens to punish all who break these commandments, therefore we should fear his wrath and not do anything against them. But he promises grace and every blessing to all who keep these commandments, therefore we should also love and trust in him and gladly do what he commands. All right. Our Old Testament reading tomorrow um, is from Proverbs 25. If there is a theme that runs through um, all three readings, including the gospel reading from Luke 14, uh, the first part of Luke 14, the uh, the common theme is humility, um, humbling oneself or being humiliated, I suppose, as well, as a converse to it. Okay? So, uh, do not take the seats of honor, but rather take this take the lower seat, and then when the, when the guest of honor comes, he will say, friend, move up higher, right? So um, humility is a virtue. <laughs> I know it's kind of a common saying. It is. Um, rather than exalt oneself, rather be ex- lifted up by others um, in praise of, of a word fitly spoken, fo- sp- fitly spoken, as we'll hear here, or perhaps um, a deed well done um, or love shown. All right. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of the great. For it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince, whom your eyes have seen. Do not go hastily to court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor has put you to shame? Debate your case with your neighbor, and do not disclose the secret to another, lest he who hears it expose your shame and your reputation be ruined. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, like an earring of gold, and an ornament of fine gold is a wise rebuker to an obedient ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the souls of his master, the soul of his masters. Whoever falsely boasts of giving is like clouds of wind and rain. All right. So again, uh, do not exalt yourself, but but uh, it's better for him to say to you, come up here, right? So there again, that is that piece of humility. Uh, this is all coming in a wider section, chapter 25. Uh, broadly speaking, this is advice to kings and leaders, right? So not necessarily to subjects, but rather to kings and leaders, those in positions of authority. Uh, for example, it goes on, verse 15, by patience, a ruler can be persuaded and a soft tongue can break a bone. When you find honey, eat only what you need, otherwise you will be filled with it and vomit it. Let your foot seldom be in your neighbor's house, otherwise he will have too much of you and hate you. A club, a sword, and a sharp arrow are a person who bears false witness against his neighbor. A broken tooth or a lame foot is confidence in an unfaithful person in time of crisis, etc. Uh, but it started this way, verse 2 of chapter 25, It is the glory of God to hide a matter and the glory of kings to investigate a matter. Like heaven for height and earth for depth, so there is no searching the heart of kings, etc. So this wisdom literature, it's um, I think it's challenging for us because we want it to be what obvious, clear, direct, um, forcefully said, or maybe each idea further developed and expanded. And it's not; it's it's proverbial. There's proverb after proverb after proverb. It requires, um, I would suggest, a degree of patience and then meditation upon each of these statements, which 
maybe connect to each other, maybe don't. Um, but uh, it's apparently most scholars agree that um, you have verses 6 through 15 or 14 here is dealing how you would deal with kings, uh, how uh, actually kings would deal with other kings, perhaps. And then, uh, and then later it will be dealing with wicked people. Uh, let's see. So according to uh, Dr. Steinman here, Proverbs 25 verses 2 to 27, so the broader context, relies heavily on comparison Proverbs, either in the form of similes like, you know, with uh, ka-like, or metaphors that make direct comparisons, right? So like the apples of gold and settings of silver is a word fitly spoken. So there's a, a, a simile or a metaphor. Among the 23 Proverbs in this section, there are 13 comparison Proverbs. And one set of Proverbs that together form a comparison, which come right before our reading. Since this section concentrates on the king and his concern for maintaining order and promoting civil righteousness, it focuses on God's law, especially applications of the fourth commandment from viewpoints of both ruler and subjects. It has little extended or explicit teaching about the gospel. Nevertheless, the believer naturally will connect language from these Proverbs to gospel themes such as God's glory, uh, the refining process, righteousness, the humble person who is exalted, that's our gospel text, being reconciled, and loving even enemies, and good news. All right. So let's look at a couple of these verses, according to Dr. Steinman. So the first two verses, six and seven, which you see in front of you, these verses form one saying that advises against seeking honor for oneself, which is unseemly, or thinking more highly of oneself than one ought. Humility can lead to elevation by others, but hubris can only lead to humiliation in front of the king himself, right? So humble oneself rather than be humiliated. To have an audience with a king was a rare privilege for many people. To be in the king's presence only to be under his scorn and disapproval would be the worst outcome for the privileged one uh, was granted. This proverb likely is part of the background for Jesus' advice in Luke 14, 8 through 11, our gospel text for tomorrow. Self-abasement through repentance and trust in Christ alone, not self, will in the end result in exaltation before God, while the arrogance of unbelief will be punished. This theology of the cross is embodied in Jesus himself, right, who humbled himself as in the form of a servant, uh, becoming obedient even unto death, death upon the cross, right, Philippians 2. All right. Um, there's other advice here, but I, obviously this was chosen particular for verses 6 and 7. Uh, verse 8, you have advice against a litigious mindset, which of course is still common today. There are those who are always ready to go to the authorities for education um, of every perceived slight may find themselves humbled when the magistrate rules in favor of their neighbor. In the same way, we should not be quick to call our neighbor to judgment before God when we may be vulnerable to the same judgment. Right? Think of the... Uh, the speck in one's eye, in the brother's eye versus the logjam in one's own eye in uh, Matthew 7. Or is that Matthew 18? Matthew 18. Uh, verses 9 and 10, which you see right here. Right? These verses are connected to uh, verse 8 with the words, go to court, argue your neighbor, as well as otherwise. This saying continues the thought of settling a dispute out of court, but warns against revealing a secret in the course of doing so. Right? Think Eighth Commandment. This will bring the shame of being known as someone who is untrustworthy and keeping confidence of others and leaving a lasting mark on one's reputation. So by revealing the sins of others unnecessarily, um, violation of the Eighth Commandment, one necessarily ruins your own reputation. 
So um, by breaking the eighth commandment, you end up, it, it, it boomerangs, I guess, is a way to put that, or it uh, bounces back against oneself. This proverb, verses 9 and 10, uh, may lie behind Jesus' ad- advice to come quickly to terms with one's accuser, Matthew 5. Of greatest importance to be reconciled is to be reconciled to God through Christ, the crucified and risen Savior. Otherwise, a person will have to face God as the accusing judge. Right? Um, verse 11 is a famous one, a word fitly spoken. Um, this verse notes that a well-spoken and well-timed comment is as beautiful as gold and silver jewelry. The saying, however, does not say what the particular comment and the proper time are. Only the person who acquires wisdom from God's word and observes life's workings in the world can learn this. And I would suggest only by the work of the Spirit does one say the words that are necessary. And then the following verse, of course, is connected. In this case, gold jewelry is compared to the value of an astute learner places on the correction offered by the wise person. All right, so there you go. But again, this verse right here, Verses 6 and 7 are probably behind in the background of our gospel text for tomorrow, right? Um, not just before the king, but before the king of kings, right? Is to humble oneself uh, and then be exalted in the forgiveness of sins. Good. All right. Um, speaking of humility, our epistle tomorrow, Ephesians 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as we were, or you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You were called, right? Lots of second person um, language here. You, 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 speaking directly to uh, the church in Ephesus, which is beautiful, right? Especially with this gospel word. Here Paul is confessing um, the church, is he not? And also, um, I suppose, the work of the Holy Spirit as well, right? So, for example, um, in the large catechism, Luther writes this. Uh, actually, let me back up a little bit. So, the word church really means nothing other than a common gathering, and is not really German, but Greek, as is also the word ecclesia. For in their own language, the Greeks call it curia, as in Latin it is called curia. Therefore, in real German, in our mother tongue, it ought to be called a Christian congregation or gathering, or best of all, and most clearly, holy Christendom. So also the word communio, which is added, right, I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church, the word communio, which is added, ought not to be translated communion, but congregation. So Luther is arguing that uh, we don't really translate the creed correctly. It is nothing else than an interpretation or explanation by which someone meant to show what the Christian church is. Our people understood neither Latin nor German. They have translated this word as communion of saints, although no German dialect says this or understands it this way. But to speak correct German, it ought to be a congregation of saints, right? A holy Christendom, a congregation of saints, etc., that is, a congregation made of purely saints, or to speak more plainly, a holy congregation. I say this in order that the words communion of saints may, may be understood. The expression has become so established by custom that it cannot be cast aside easily, and it is treated almost as heresy if someone attempts to change the word. So, hence, we continue with the translation we have, and we just explain it, right? Church means a common gathering, 
Um, communion of saints means the congregation of saints or a holy congregation. But this is the meaning and substance of this edition. I believe that there is upon earth a little holy group and congregation of pure saints under one head, even Christ. This group is called together by the Holy Spirit in one faith, one mind, and understanding, with many different gifts, yet agreeing in love without sex and schisms, just like we see in our epistle before us. I am also a part and member of this same group, a sharer and joint owner of all the goods it possesses. I am brought to it and incorporated into it by the Holy Spirit through having heard and continuing to hear God's word, which is the beginning of entering it. In the past, before we had attained to this, we were altogether of the devil, knowing nothing about God and about Christ. So, until the last day, the Holy Spirit abides with the Holy Congregation, or Christendom. Through this congregation, he brings us to Christ, and he teaches and preaches to us the Word. By the Word, he works and promotes sanctification, causing the congregation daily to grow and to become strong in the faith and its fruit, which he produces." We further believe that in this Christian church, we have the forgiveness of sin, which is wrought through the holy sacraments and absolution, and through all kinds of comforting promises from the entire gospel. Everything, therefore, in the Christian church is ordered toward this goal. We shall daily receive in the church nothing but the forgiveness of sin through the word and signs to comfort and encourage our consciences as long as we live here. So, even though we have sins by the grace of the Holy Spirit, um, does not allow them to harm us, for we are in the Christian church where there is nothing but continuous, uninterrupted forgiveness of sin. This is because God forgives us and because we forgive, bear with and help one another. All right. Um, so speaking of the church, Article 8 of uh, the Augsburg Confession um, explicitly references Ephesians 4, verses 5 through 6, right? So just like Luther in a small catechism, which came earlier, so the Augsburg Confession a few years later does the same. Our churches teach that the one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are correctly administered. For the true unity of the church, it is enough to agree about the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. It is not necessary that human traditions, that is, rites or ceremonies instituted by men should be the same everywhere. As St. Paul says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4 verses 5 through 6. All right, so just like we talked about with Proverbs, so here with Ephesians, the kind of humility that God is talking about isn't just humility before one another, but that we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. So that humility means uh, to be subject um, to God in his word, to listen to what he says, to receive the gifts that he gives, to accept the uh, rebuking hand of the law, right, and the exalting hand of the gospel, which delivers forgiveness of sins, continuously and interrupted in the church, right? In that beautiful statement from Luther. And um, so the Lord lifts us up. You can think of Mary here too, right? Where he humbles the proud in the imagination of their hearts and the, and the poor, he gives good things, right? And uh, that theology of the cross or being a theologian of the cross is to recognize that God uses kind of the opposite of what we would expect to bring about um, our good. So through death, he get, brings life, right? With his cross, um, through suffering, he brings um, he brings li- uh, life, no joy, I guess. Uh, through Christ's suffering, we look upon Christ's suffering, and and it's our source of joy. There we go, right? So it's it's inverted. It seems backwards in, in the ways of the world, and that's what makes Christ's cross such a stumbling block. Is that um, God chooses to work through the opposites, paradoxically, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why humility is esteemed by Jesus rather than uh, hubris or pride, right? Uh, even as Paul says, if I boast in anything, I boast in, in the Lord, not in myself. Even though I have a lot of things, Paul, <laughs> yeah, I love his tongue-in-cheek stuff. Um, even though Paul himself says he has plenty to boast of, yet he will not. He'll boast only in the Lord. All right. So hopefully that's helpful for you to think tomorrow about um, true humility. And it comes, um, well, how the Lord humbles us, we'll talk about tomorrow, perhaps. All right. Our hymn today, as I walk, or all week, has been I Walk in Danger All the Way. I'm going to share a little bit of the history of this hymn for you so that you can understand the perspective uh, that it comes from. All right. Uh, so not not much, just a little bit here. The sobering hymn by the Lutheran pastor and later bishop Hans Adolf Brorsen, 1694-1764, first appeared in his Nogelsalmner on Trunsfrucht, some hymns, I don't know Dutch, sorry, some hymns on the fruit of faith, 1734. Brorsen constructs the text around a series of biblical images from a variety of passages, including 1 Peter 5, John 16, Psalm 90, Psalm 34, John 8, Hebrews 13, and Philippians 3. The translation that appears in both Lutheran Witness of 1982 and Lutheran Service Book is slightly is a slightly altered form of the one prepared by Detlef G. Ristad, 1863-1938, that was used in both Lutheran hymnary and in the Lutheran hymnal, 1941. Uh, let's see. The tune, let's see. Well, so I'll just give you some of the differences from TLH, all right? Um, so, for example, I walk in danger every day is the old translation. Um, instead of that Satan who has marked his prey, in line three there, it was that Satan lurks along my way, the old translation, with cunning to deceive me, with plotting to deceive me, I suppose. This fiend with crafty snares, this foe with hidden snares, I don't know, that's probably all right, may take me unawares, may seize me unawares. So there's some of the differences um, from the Lutheran hymnary. And then there's quite a few distinctions um, that's mostly just like... Uh, you know, old English to, to modern English. All worldly pomp be gone, then worldly pomp be gone, for example. From all thy sin and sorrow was all suffering, is now all suffering sin and sorrow. It was, I walk amongst angels all the way. Now it's just, I walk with angels all the way. Um, the tune comes from German hymn, place of origin, Germany composer unidentified. The source is from Johann Anastasius Freilinghausen's Geistrichter's Gesangbuch der Kernalter and Neuer Lieder um, in Halle in 1708. So it's really, um, the tune is aria-like with frequent eighth note ornamentation in uh, the original source. Huh, that'd be interesting to hear. All right, I think that's enough to get us ready for the hymn, so let's sing.
Walk in danger all the way, the thought shall never leave me. That Satan, who has marked his spring, is plotting to deceive me. This fall with hidden snares misses me on unawares. If I should fail to watch and pray, I walk in danger all the way. I pass through trials all the way with sin and ill's contending. In patience I must bear each day the cross of God's own sending. When in adversity I know not where to flee When storms of woe my soul dismay I pass through trials all the way Now death pursues me all the way Nowhere I rest securely comes by night, he comes by day, he takes his prey most surely, a failing breath and high, and a strong grasp may lie, to face eternity today, as death pursues me all the way. I walk with angels all the way, they shield me and befriend me. All Satan's power is held at bay, when heavenly hosts attend me. They are my sure defense, all feared and sword or hand. Unharmed by foes, do what they may. I walk with angels all the way. I walk with Jesus all the way. His guidance never fails me. Within his wounds, I find my stay. When Satan's part assails me, and by his footsteps led, by path I safely tread. No evil leads my soul astray, I walk with Jesus all the way. My walk is heavenward all the way, Await my soul the morrow When God's good healing shall allay All suffering, sin, and sorrow Then worldly pump be gone To heaven I now press on For all the world I would not stay I walk as heavenward all the way.
Let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, apart from you, we have no life or salvation. Therefore, you are a jealous God, desiring us to fear, love, and trust in you above all things. You punish children for the sin they share in and have committed from their fathers, that they might be brought to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. You show love and mercy to those who love you and keep your commandments. Therefore, grant us true repentance and forgive us every sin against your holy law, that we might cheerfully love you and gladly do what you command. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray, O Lord, we pray your grace may always go before and follow after us, that we may continually be given to all good works. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray today for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray in Thanksgiving today with Sovereign, who celebrates his birthday and his baptism. We also pray for our households, Graydon, Bobby, Robbie and Lisa, Dick and Jean, Greg and Sharon and Amanda. Pray for our catechumens, Christian, Wyatt, Aaliyah, Lydia, Charlie, Kaylee, and Kimberly. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Kelsey, Dan, Brad, Ron, Marla, Betty, Pat, and Heidi. Pray for our homebound Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, Paul, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially that of Orphan Grain Train. Pray for those suffering the effects of Hurricane um, Ian. And we pray with Wendell, who grieves his, the death of his mother, Connie. Uh, for this prayer of intercession here, let's actually pray a longer prayer. God of Sabaoth, powerful and merciful God, be with me so I do not succumb to satanic temptations and plots. Guarded by your presence and supported by your help, make me victorious over them. There are fears within me and conflicts outside of me. Inwardly, the devil wounds my soul with the poison and fiery darts of temptation. Outwardly, he harasses me with adversities and a thousand traps. He is like a serpent because of his treacherous deception, a lion because of his violent aggression, and a dragon because of his cruel oppression. If he dared to attempt to make himself commander of the heavenly army, will he keep himself from me, a common soldier? If he did not think twice to oppose the very head, is there any wonder that he attempts to destroy a weak member of the mystical body? I have no power that can sustain me against this armed force. I have no wisdom by which to escape the deceptions and nets of its thousandfold traps. With humble sighs I turn to you. Your power knows no bounds. Your wisdom is immeasurable. Be with me, O Christ, most powerful lion of the tribe of Judah, so in you and through you I am able to overcome this infernal lion. You have fought and won for me, now fight and win in me, so your strength may be made perfect in my weakness. Illumine the eyes of my mind so I can see these satanic traps. Direct my feet so I can flee the devil's hidden snares. When I gain the victory in temptation, I have proof of my heavenly regeneration. The presence of your grace confirms the promise of victory. Prepare an army with the power of your might. So in this battle of the war, I am able to stand firm and hereafter judge that enemy by whom I am attacked. As the dangerous plots of the enemy increase, I eagerly desire the help of your mercy. The devil instills in me an insatiable desire for earthly things, so he can lead me away from the way of righteousness and bind me by shackles of covetousness. 
He inflames me with the spur of wrath, so my heart burns within to bring injury to my neighbor. Out of nowhere, the devil incites me to love and lust for pleasures, and then he inspires jealousy and ambition in my soul. Before he casts me headlong into sin, he persuades me that sin is lighter than a feather, lighter than a leaf on the air. As soon as he casts me headlong into sin, he repeatedly asserts that sin is greater than heaven and earth and heavier than the balance of divine mercy. Finally, I am driven to despair. If I cannot see such numerous and great plots of this enemy, how can I possibly guard against them by my own power? Therefore I flee to you, my courage, and my eternal rock of strength. Amen. We pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. It's been a joy to have you here today as we consider um, what we've been looking at throughout the week with the Ten Commands, but also uh, tomorrow's Old Testament and uh, epistle. And I hope that brings some well, background. As uh, Vicky says, I appreciate how much background you give to so many things. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just, it's a, it's about comprehension, right? And if you understand context, if you understand um, maybe intent or perspective, have other perspective, then it brings a richness, um, especially to those readings. And then I, w- I would suggest also to the liturgy, to the hymnody and to the preaching. All right. So uh, it's worth the effort. I'm glad you were here with us today and uh, I hope to see you tomorrow for divine service. And remember tomorrow is uh, a mission Sunday where we have a missionary here to speak to us after divine service. So uh, make plans to stay afterwards, and uh, all the quilts are out that the that the ladies have made um, that will be donated um, for those in need, places where they have difficulty heating and whatnot. All right, so uh, we get to rejoice in that as well. So God's blessings to you all, and we'll see you tomorrow. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sherman Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.